Welcome to the Nuco Shift Dialogues podcast. For the first season, we've selected some of the best conversations we've had throughout the year to share with you, our first listeners. These conversations were originally recorded at the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center as part of our Dialogues project, where we chat with leaders on the front lines of the greatest shift in business since the Industrial Revolution. The first season of our podcast is brought to you by EY, Building a Better Working World. Technology is no longer a standalone industry. It's the base layer for all sectors of our economy, driving transformational change in every aspect of our lives. That's why Tim O'Reilly, a technology pioneer and publisher, is widening his scope to a world much larger than just tech. He's also focusing on how tech interacts with larger systems of government, policy, and the global economy. Welcome, Tim. So I want to start with this, uh, the question that you, that you say you often you know, uh, start with, which is that technology seems to be in something of a crisis of trust. Can you tell me more about that, unpack that for me? Uh, whether it's uh, gentrification in San Francisco being a flashpoint uh, or the fear of AI, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rogue AI, or whether it is uh, the working conditions uh, of the on-demand economy, uh, you know, tech is increasingly being painted as a villain. And so part of it is, uh, much as we did with Web 2.0, trying to come up with the correct map right. of the way the world works. And so I've been framing things up around this concept I have of today's economy as the WTF economy. Uh, and then how do we get from the WTF economy to the next economy that we want? Mm -hmm. Now, WTF is a great phrase because it can be an expression of wonder uh, or it can be an expression of dismay or disgust. And that is really a lot of what we see. Yeah. You, know, you look at, at a company like Uber and you, you hear the wonder and you hear the disgust paired together. And it doesn't have to be that way. So you know, here along comes Uber with this absolute magical app uh, which people start going, wow, what an amazing experience that I can call people, uh, you know, call a driver at any point, any place, get picked up, know where the car is. It was so much better user experience than what went before. And as a result, Uber takes off like crazy. You know, it's, it's grown the industry, it's grown jobs, and in the beginning, they're actually really quite good jobs. Yeah. Well, what happened? All of a sudden, the WTF turns, and we're in the, 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 the bad WTF, you know? And uh, all of a sudden, we're seeing you know, Uber you know, treating its drivers as disposable, you know, cranking down on their earnings. And all of a sudden, you know, tech has gone from the wonder of WTF to the dismay of WTF. Well, I mean, Uber really reflects this even more dramatically because, you know, Uber CEO has not made a secret of the fact that he thinks that most drivers will be um, not only dispensable but unnecessary within but, five but, to ten but years. But here, here's the key point, and, and this goes back to the map. Just as we did with Web 2.0, we said, look, uh, you know, in the old days, software uh, APIs were the source of industry control and marketplace advantage. Now it's going to be data. Uh, you know, we kind of told a story. Well, here's the way I'm thinking about the next economy. One of the key concepts is that you use technology to augment workers to do something that was previously impossible. Right. And it's an amazing opportunity. Uh, and so when companies don't really understand what is the source of their advantage, they can make big missteps. Mm -hmm. so, do you, uh, so just to make sure, I'm not, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but is it your opinion that, it, that Uber right now is, is making such a misstep in terms of its well, way of communicating its I, services? I think some of it is a misstep in terms of the way it's communicating its services. 
And some of it is, is really a fundamental misstep because they do seem to have a deficit of idealism. Uh -huh. uh, and a deficit of idealism. When, when I uh, say that, uh, you know, I, I mean it's really important for all of us in, in tech and in business to understand that we are part of a system. And the entire system has to work. And I think one of the great geniuses of Google in the, the last revolution was that they really were devoted to creating value as a whole. You know, pretty early on, they started doing their economic impact report, really looking at you know, how are they making other people better. And if we go back to Uber as an example, that Uber is now lending and has a, a, a you know, I, I would say a questionable practice of lending automobiles to its drivers, right? right? And, and, I, and I think that there's, there's really some short-term thinking here. You know? And I think some of it's driven in, on Uber's part by you know, this win-at-all-costs uh, mentality. Uh, but th there really is a, a very, very different kind of equation. So you think about the, the original role of financial markets, which was to provide capital, and it still does that. I mean, clearly you know, Uber is being fueled by that. Amazon has grown into a great company, but a lot of companies are still ruled by the market, so-called, even though they don't actually need anything from the market. Mm -hmm. And there's this ideology that says, you know, for example, with Carl Icahn uh, going after Apple to disgorge their cash, I mean, yeah, they should be telling them to go take a hike. Right, but yeah. they're not. And, yeah. and they're, you know, and this is, uh, you know, Ron Farrar's book is essentially yeah, yeah, about, exactly. about these things, um, that we have a system that seems rigged to do really one thing if you're in the management of these companies, right. which is to increase the share price. That's exactly And in order right. to do that, you need to grow, and in order to grow profits, you right. need to reduce cost and increase revenues. Right. So, so it's this cycle that keeps right. driving right. a growth imperative, where, which is, of course, Douglas Rushkoff's point, which is maybe we don't need a growth imperative in our economy. Do you see a time well, and I think where we get to... Equilibrium down. in economy as opposed to this growth imperative. Yeah, we're not going to run out of work till we run out of problems. And you know, you look around, there's a lot that needs doing. You know? mm -hmm. And we have to understand that uh, there's so much opportunity when we focus on work as opposed to on jobs. You know, when Elon yeah. Musk define the well, difference for me. you know, um, there are a lot of people, uh, this is kind of pivoting away a little bit uh, from, you know, entrepreneurs uh, towards policymakers. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the way the political discussion goes, we need jobs. And it's this sort of magical thinking that the market will supply jobs. Right. Yet the market, you know, is incentivized to not create jobs because, in fact, it's incentivized to cut costs. And if we had a different allocation between you know, consumer surplus, uh, you know, investor profits and, and, and owner profits, you know, worker wages, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we, we, we would end up, in, I think, in a much more uh, stable equilibrium. So if we had that, then what would we do? There's two things that we would do that would, would get us out of the, you know, economic doldrums. The first is we would actually start focusing on uh, some of the things that we collectively need to do, rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, uh, you know, deal with the the, uh, uh, the energy transition that we're all uh, needing to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an economy where uh, the the fruits of productivity are allocated more fairly. We end up with a much richer society that is based on a kind of creative premium. Mm. You know, when you think about uh, 
you know, everybody worries that all the jobs will go away. And, and I go, if the machines did every bit of work in which productivity is the, uh, you know, is the key to advancement, right, what would be left? Well, it would be the creative economy. And all that would, all that which can, all that can be automated will be automated. Yeah, let, let's assume. Are you, are you, are yeah, you, let's you, assume that all that can be automated will be automated, and everybody says, "Well, everybody will be out of work." We already know what happens when people have enough. They compete on the basis of added value that is creative, that is caring. So I think there are new economic models, and you obviously see this with Kickstarter and GoFundMe and other kinds of crowdfunding, and even really, in some ways, the crowdfunding of venture opportunities is mm -hmm. in that you know, same, uh, uh, you know, category. Right. But, so this creative economy, I think, is the other big pillar of the future economy. One of the things you're asking for, for the tech industry to start leading here, to have a voice for the, for the founders and the entrepreneurs behind some of these companies to come out and actually start talking about these ideas? Absolutely. I think tech can and should play a leadership role. And, there, there are a number of ways that they can do that. One is uh, by, you know, first of all, understanding the future shape of the economy and that, you know, building a business that's based on the principles uh, that will produce a more robust circular. One economy. of the things that definitely for you creates a next economy company is that. Is that core mission? Is that part? Well, of when I I'm, I'm working on trying to you know in the same way we did with Web 2.0, mm -hmm. trying to define a set of characteristics. And the first one I've uh, you know I come to is uh, uh, you know is this one I talked about earlier? Next economy companies uh, don't just use technology to reduce you know need for people. They augment people, augment people. to do things that were previously impossible. Right. 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 And so. Uh, you know, and, and, and this sort of theme of human augmentation rather than human replacement is central, I think, right. to next economy companies. Secondly, they tackle the world's hardest problems before they tackle us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, third, uh, they create great experiences for consumers, but they also create great experiences for the people who are delivering their services to consumers. Right. And that's where I, I, you know, I feel like someone like Logan Green at, at Lyft is at least thinking about the, uh, you know, you know, framing what they're trying to do in that way of rethinking public transportation right. and, and you know, with a real sort of visionary goal of making society better rather than just, well, we're going to crush the competition and we're going to uh, right. you know, right. uh, make a lot of money for our investors. Right. I mean, they obviously are doing that too. Um, yeah. you know, but I, I, I feel like there, there's a real need for imagination uh, around what needs doing. There are these technology entrepreneurs who have been successful and it strikes me that they are not satisfied with going out and trying to just have another big financial success. They really do want to try to bite off a really hard problem. Yeah. Max Mentia at Alt School or Seth at Honor or even what Max is doing at a firm and trying to re, you know, try to attack the whole consumer debt problem. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these companies, mm -hmm. Jeff Huber at Grail, right? But there's probably 15 or 20, really. Elon with mm -hmm. Tesla and mm -hmm. SpaceX yeah. and SolarCity. Yeah. But there's not an infinite number. There's not even really 100. There's, there's, yeah, but are are you hoping that there's going to be companies that are of that ilk, but maybe with smaller missions that can, are more sustainable? You know, I do think that you know, 
identifying what is important in these companies mm -hmm. and telling a story about it is one way to get people to start changing how they operate. Right. We were talking uh, about sort of exemplary companies, next mm -hmm. economy companies, um, that have more than profit at the heart of their model. They have sort of mm -hmm. societal benefit. Yeah. There is a structure that exists. It's relatively new. It's sort mm -hmm. of a movement, they yeah. would call it, called B Corps, yeah. uh, the B Corporation or the Public yeah. Benefit Corporation. Um, you have a point of view about them. I do, uh, and uh, you know, I admire you know companies like Etsy and uh, uh, Kickstarter that have you know taken that route. But there's something that sticks in my craw about B Corps, and it is the assumption. It's the acceptance of the assumption that the normal corporate form does not do those things and does not have an obligation to do those things. Right. You know. Uh, you know, it's B Corp is a capitulation to the notion that a corporation is fundamentally hostile to society and hostile to humans and only cares about profit. Right. And we have to get away from that. We have to make it clear that the obligation and the self-interest of every company is uh, to build a robust society that works over the long term. One of the things that certainly has become, uh, you know, uh, I hesitate to say in vogue, but uh, the conversation uh, in the Valley around the concept of universal ba basic income has gotten quite significant. Yeah. It, it was really not much discussed even three years ago. Yeah. It is now on everybody's lips, it seems, that people are studying it, people are very interested yeah. in that. Con what's your point of view about that? And what's the role of government toward yeah universal basic income? You know, I, I think there are a couple of things I would say about universal uh, basic income. Uh, first of all, I think there may be a time when it really is the appropriate response. And, and it certainly, I actually was talking with Paul Buchheit, uh, creator of Gmail, who's now at Y Combinator, about this recently. And he, he said something really interesting. He said, uh, uh, we should really call it the citizen's dividend, which apparently was a term that mm. uh, originally was framed by uh, Thomas Paine, and uh, of course it goes back even before that. Uh, they had something of that uh, concept back in, in ancient Greece. But uh, this notion that the fruits, in his case, the fruits of, of, of the bounty of nature should be shared equally. Uh, uh, here, the, the fruits of machine productivity, not should be shared equally, but should be, should be shared in a more uh, robust way. You know, it's quite obvious if you look around and you study history that when uh, you have an elite that takes all the value for itself uh, and creates an underclass, that's not a stable system. Right. And any self-interested plutocrat should be trying to actually fix that by building a more stable society uh, you know, with a robust middle class. When we were speaking earlier, you mentioned that, uh, that there is a particular sort of Silicon Valley disease that, that has to do with um, sort of magical thinking or unicorn thinking that you know, we need to make these companies that are so extraordinary that they become outsized 1,000 times or 10,000 time return winners. Yeah. And that everyone's sort of running after that and if you don't get there, you, you failed. Um, but you argued to me that sometimes good enough is just that. Uh, a unicorn is defined by wonder. Uh, you know, Uber was a unicorn not because they achieved this great valuation. They were a unicorn the first day they appeared. Uh, and, and people said, whoa, that's amazing. 
You know, Google Maps was a unicorn, even though you know it never had that separate valuation. You know, the World Wide Web was a unicorn, even mm -hmm. though Tim Berners-Lee never became a billionaire off of it. Right. Uh, and uh, so, I think we need to reset our sense of unicorns away from the dollar value and to the magic, mm -hmm. because uh, you know, magic actually transforms society in the end. We should be aspiring to create the economic value for ourselves be, be, by creating economic value for society right. and not just extracting that value. Is this just the, the, the tech industry, maybe after 30 year run of, of, of the digitalization of our economy, kind of growing into its own responsibility and citizenship? Uh, I, I think, no, I think what it really is is the fact that we've had a lot of people, very entitled people, uh, feeding off of a financialization bubble mm -hmm. that's going to pop. Mm -hmm. And the people who, just as happened in after 2001 with the dot-com bust, the companies that stuck around were the people who actually had, were working on something deeper, longer, uh, more substantial. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cruft is, you know, gets washed away periodically, and then, then you see the people who actually are working on making a better future. Mm -hmm. And there's no question if you look back, who survived the dot-com bust? You know, these are great companies. Yeah. And I think it should be our aspiration to create great, lasting companies with a positive impact. And when we do, that actually is a better business. Yeah, I agree. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. All right, you're welcome. All right. <laughs> Thanks to our sponsor, EY, for their support of our first season of the Shift Dialogue podcast. EY, building a better working world.